Hello and welcome to the latest edition of Opposition Cast. And we're back on our normal schedule of releasing uh, the new episode on a Tuesday morning after we were a little bit late uh, for the last episode. All I can say is that uh, yes we did break our normal schedule but in our defence it was only in a very limited and specific way. My guest this week is somebody who was once described by the Political Studies Association as our greatest living expert on Parliament. Professor Philip Norton, otherwise known as Lord Norton of Louth, is Director of the Centre for Legislative Studies and Professor of Government at the University of Hull. When he was first appointed to his chair there in 1986, he was at the time the youngest Professor of Politics in the UK. He was raised to the peerage and entered the House of Lords in 1998, and is now the author or editor of 32 books. And he has a new one out, entitled Governing Britain, Parliament, Ministers and Our Ambiguous Constitution. It's a timely look at some of the difficulties and controversies about how Britain is actually governed and our parliamentary system. So it was a good time for us to catch up with him and to talk about some of the constitutional aspects of political opposition and some of the more theoretical aspects. First of all, obviously our our focus is on opposition, as the name would would suggest. You've written about how the term opposition in political studies is sort of widely used, but um, often quite ambiguous in how it's actually understood. Is there a problem with definition of opposition in political studies? There is in in that there's a tendency just to refer to opposition without clarifying what opposition you're talking about. Um, In the UK context, for example, you've got the opposition, you have opposition parties, and you can have intra-party opposition, and indeed during coalitions, inter-party opposition. So a government can face opposition, but the nature it takes, the form it takes, can vary quite considerably. So you've got an official body that is termed the opposition, Her Majesty's opposition, if you like, capital O, um, publicly funded in terms of the leader, the opposition chief whip and so on, and recognised um, by the speaker who designates the opposition as normally the second largest party, the party that could stand in in the event of the existing government ceasing to exist. But then you've got opposition parties of which the opposition is one, but quite typically you have others as well. So if you like, what the government faces is opposition benches comprising more than the opposition with a capital O. And that's the normal mode of British politics, the opposition mode of uh, executive legislative relations, as Anthony King uh, termed it. Uh, And that's a central feature. It's the public feature of our adversarial political system, government versus the opposition. Now, in that sense, the opposition is important, but it's, as, it's important for being heard, for making its case, for putting its case forward as the alternative to the government. In terms of policy effect, it's the least effective form of opposition. Um, occasionally, we'll have opposition parties able to have some policy effect on occasion where we've got a minority government, but the most effective opposition is intra-party. If you have a coalition, it could be inter-party with the coalition partner 
failing to agree to something. But normally if you've got majority government, then the most important opposition that matters is within the governing party, because that can stop you getting what you want. So intra-party opposition may be infrequent, but nowadays more frequent than it used to be. And from a government's point of view, that's the most important in the short term, in terms of it can affect whether you get your measures through. You face the opposition, you make your case against the opposition, but that's not likely to be able to block anything and is really looking ahead to the next election. So there are different types of opposition, and that's just opposition within the House of Commons. So in a bicameral system, the government may face, or the executive may face opposition from the second chamber in different forms. And of course, in a federal system, it may face opposition from uh, the states, the component uh, parts of uh, the, uh, the nation. So opposition to the executive can come from different, take different forms and come at different levels. And that's just looking at opposition within the political framework, if you like, constitutional opposition, not considering extra parliamentary activity, extra parliamentary opposition. So it's a very broad concept. And uh, something that I've, I've noted in the past is that it, it tends to be used as, a, uh, as though we all understand what we're talking about, but it, it, it needs to be defined before we start, start referring to it. And as you say, the intra-party opposition, essentially sort of rebellions and, and resistance within a governing party, has become increasingly significant in, in recent years. You've done um, a lot of work in the past on rebellions, and it's, it's true, isn't it, that, that rebellions have become more frequent in British politics over recent decades. There, there seems to be a, a fallacy that people adhere to, that uh, in the good old days you had independent-minded MPs who would vote their conscience and uh, the party whips have now got a, an iron grip. That's not true, is it? No, it's the other way around. Um, just going back to your first point, in terms of definitions, um, defining op opposition as such is the easy bit. It's the forms it takes that are quite complex. So opposition, as the name implies, is opposing, standing in relation to the executive. You're um, challenging it, you're opposing it, but the forms it takes are quite complex. And central to your question, if you like, more complex and more significant now, because of intrapartisan which were quite right, was not that significant before from the government perspective. Members tend to be quite loyal. Uh, and this has been a long-standing feature of British politics, really, since the advent of mass membership political parties in the 19th century, following the enlargement of the franchise. Now, by the end of the 19th century, party cohesion was a marked feature of parliamentary politics. The whips were very effective. They knew the outcomes fairly easily. And that remained the case uh, for most of the 20th century and mostly it remains the case in the sense that normally government with an overall majority in the House of Commons is going to get its way. So its majority is normally assured, but it's no longer guaranteed in the way that it was up until the 1970s. So up to the 1970s, government may face opposition from some of its own backbenchers, but if the government persisted, it knew it'd get its way. So members had to rely on persuasion. They weren't prepared to deploy essentially a coercive capacity, the sanction they had to vote against their own side. They argued that they may argue against it, but they wouldn't go the whole hog of ultimately voting against it. Um, there were occasions when some backbenchers did, but not on a scale that would threaten the government. Um, 
that changed from 1970 onwards under the Heath government, uh, substantially increasing intra-party dissent on benches, uncertain members willing to vote against their own side more frequently in greater numbers than before and with greater effect. So the Heath government, despite an overall majority, a reasonable working majority, suffered six defeats because some Conservative MPs voted with the opposition or opposition parties uh, to defeat it. Now, the subsequent Labour governments um, of 1974 and then 74 and 79 suffered even more because they were vulnerable to different oppositions. A minority government um, for the short 1974 Parliament and then from April 1976 under uh, Callaghan were vulnerable to defeat by opposition parties combining against it, uh, which they did on occasion, but not as much as they could because the opposition parties themselves were divided. So, you know, quite often the nationalists would go with the government, for example. Um, so the government's actually defeated more often because its own backbenchers voted with the opposition parties to uh, defeat it. So you've got slightly more, the majority of those defeats were the consequence of 42 defeats, something like 21, were the result of Labour MPs voting with opposition parties. So that really was uh, significant. Um, subsequent governments had high, bigger majorities able to absorb dissent uh, more frequent, more easily, but you still got dissent continuing and then it increased uh, towards the end under Blair and then Brown uh, and then expanded significantly under coalition government because you, not least because of inter-party opposition as well as intra-party and then it's, it was very pronounced under the government returned in 2017 and, and Theresa May facing sort of dissent from her own backbenchers, well indeed not just her own backbenchers, from some of her own ministers on an unprecedented scale. And of course the, the sort of interaction between different modes of opposition is important as well because you've got the, the intra-party um, opposition which if you have a certain level of, of backbench dissent it makes the, the opposition and the opposition parties more potent. Um, so there, there's an element of tactics here as well, isn't there, that um, the opposition, if it's looking to defeat the government, it needs to make those alliances and try and find issues where it can find common cause with government backbenchers. That's quite a, a difficult thing sometimes, but it's, um, it, it's important if they want to win votes. Oh, absolutely. The tactics can vary significantly because you do have a, a configuration of parties. So, um, and within the parties themselves may be divided, not just the government. So, I mean, the Labour um, government, 7479, faced substantial opposition from the Tribune group, Labour MPs, the left. So they were quite to the fore in dissent within the ranks of the government. But that wasn't the biggest threat to government because the Conservative opposition were quite often supportive of government. They were close to the government line than that taken by the Labour left-wingers. So they were quite often uh, out on their own. So Labour was under threat from members drawn from all parts of the party. So that's why it lost on devolution. So it's sort of flagship devolution policy was lost because members drawn from different parts of the party, you know, Tamdale, Leo Abbs voting with the people on the, the left, very much in opposition to uh, devolution. So that's where it, it, it was a problem. And then it's what do the opposition parties do? So Labour 7479 was very much under threat from the opposition parties, but the whips were quite adept at trying to play one off against the other or make sure that some of the smaller parties were 
on board and go along with them. So they were quite effective in, in, in that respect. So mobilising support where they could to keep the government in office. So it's quite a, a, a balancing act. So even though they kept losing votes, they carried on because the vote that really matters for continuation of office is a confidence vote. So there's a big difference between votes that you lose that aren't on confidence votes. And obviously a confidence vote is an existentialist threat. Um, so yes, I mean, the whips are busy in conditions like that, sort of playing parties off, mobilising different parties. So it's, it's both working on members within the parties, but then it's working on other parties as well. Of course, what you've seen since the 70s has been a growth in the number of opposition parties in the House of Commons. Whereas before, um, particularly post-war years, you know, 1945 to 70 particularly, it was just government and the opposition. Since then, you've had a growth in minority parties, the Liberals, the Liberal Democrats grown at times, but of course, particularly uh, the Nationalists. But really, when we're um, looking at opposition, most people think of the opposition with, as you said, a capital O, uh, Her Majesty's loyal opposition. It's quite a distinct uh, institution in its own right, isn't it? This is something which I'm rather obsessed with, is, is, is opposition as an institution. How has it actually grown uh, grown up in the British system? I mean, it's, um, it's quite a, we, we take it for granted now, but it is quite a, a particular institution based, as you alluded to, on a conception of the House of Commons as a binary house. And it doesn't perhaps reflect the multiplicity of parties that we have now. How do we get to a situation where we've got such an institutionalised um, opposition in the House of Commons? Well, it derives from our, our system of government, uh, the nature of the House of Commons, if you like, for one thing, uh, an adversarial system, one side for, for sitting facing the other, derived from meeting, of course, in St Stephen's Chapel. And that's become a feature not only of our politics, but if you like, of the Westminster model. So the concept of opposition with a capital O is very much a feature of Westminster Parliament. It's not distinctive to Westminster. It's just as marked elsewhere. And indeed, some of the language we use about opposition derives from elsewhere, not least Canada. So there is a, a recognition of opposition. It is Her Majesty's loyal opposition, as you say, because it accepts the rules of the game. Both government and opposition accept they're operating within a particular structure, which is legitimate. The government is entitled to get its business. The opposition is entitled to be heard. And it proceeds on that basis and the rules uh, of the way the House operates is structured on two main units, government opposition. It actually has difficulty incorporating within the structures of rules the third parties. So it accepts the legitimacy of the system um, and as it works within an adversarial system, government versus opposition. So you need that structure to face government. And that's key to our political system because the electors then know who is in government, who to hold to account for public policy at the next election, but they also know who the alternative is, who is the alternative government. That's the point. The opposition is also the alternative government. Government also recognises that it is the alternative opposition, so it might lose the next election. So that keeps it in check because it doesn't want to use its majority to overcome opposition in terms of how the rules are structured, because it may one day be the opposition and doesn't want to be too constrained by them either. So each accepts the legitimacy of the others, and the whole system is structured on that. So it came to be that the leader of the opposition was a recognised post, 
a publicly funded post, same with the opposition chief whip, it's extended since, and opposition parties are funded through what's known as short money deriving from the 70s to assist them in fulfilling their parliamentary duties. So our system proceeds on the basis of government and opposition, and it has difficulty accommodating if you move from that, which of course arose in the Second World War because you had the government and the opposition like combining to form a government. So a Labour backbencher, H.B. Lee Smith, had to be appointed as leader of the opposition purely for, if you like, procedural purposes, because he had to be leader of the opposition, even though he's a supporter of the government. So we do proceed on that basis. And I say it's a feature not just of Westminster, but of the Westminster system. So you see it as much in places like Canada and Australia uh, as you actually do in Westminster. So it is very much a feature of the Westminster system. Uh, Andrew Kaiser did a very good article looking at those features of the Westminster system in terms of opposition and why it's distinctive. And as you say, some of those um, features um, have been borrowed from other Westminster systems. I'm thinking particularly of the, the payment of a salary for, for the leader, which was, was done in, I think, Canada yes. long before it was in, in, yeah. in, in the UK. Have there been other aspects which um, have been borrowed from, from other Westminster systems? Um, not necessarily, not, I don't think so much in terms of government versus opposition. I mean, we've borrowed quite a lot at Westminster from other systems, not just Westminster systems, but there is a lot of um, observing, uh, feeding into the way the system operates, learning from it, particularly at least in relation to committees. So on the whole, the adversarial system was, if you like, exported, but we've learned since um, from the other systems. So some borrowing, and certainly that concept of opposition, as you say, more developed in formal sense in Canada, uh, and we did do some borrowing there. And you talked about um, committees there. One of the major changes in the, the British Parliament has been the uh, introduction of select committees um, from the, the 70s, the sort of reinvention of them then. Now, they've taken on a much more institutional scrutiny role. And of course, the opposition has traditionally had two functions of being sort of scrutineers of the government and also the alternative government. How did the introduction of select committees change that dynamic? Because in a way, they were taking on quite a lot of that, yes. uh, that responsibility. But it does differ from opposition, isn't it? It's, it's, a, it's a different yes. sort of scrutiny. Oh, very much so. Um, yes, and it, it's been a problem because of the very thing we've been talking about, you know, structured on government versus opposition, the government dominating in the chamber and actually using its majority to deter the creation of uh, select committees. So even though select committees in the British context go back centuries, but once you've got party government, the, the government sort of was not keen on having them. So why would it want to set up committees that would be there to scrutinise it, subject to critical um, observation? Um, so it's been quite a struggle to bring them into existence, and that's not peculiar to Westminster. It's actually a feature of Westminster parliaments because of that adversarial nature. So whereas um, if you look at the consensual or continental parliament, they're built on having committees, and quite often the committees are more important than the members, than the plenary session. So the committees might be site of the sites of actual discussion, negotiation, and the plenary is just to confirm what's agreed there. So quite a number of parliaments are committee-oriented. The feature of the Westminster system is 
historically it's not. So it's actually been quite a struggle bringing them into existence. And that's been a feature not just of you know, Westminster, been a feature of Canada, India uh, as well. So we've got there eventually, but rather late in the day relative to other systems. So it does challenge that normal adversarial system, which is also the other feature of it. it it's chamber-oriented government versus opposition. The chamber, if you like, is the arena for the grand debate between the parties. Now, select is very different. They take the scrutiny of the law of the house. And as you were touching upon, essentially, it's, it's a cross-party form of scrutiny. So parties don't figure to the same extent. And that's been quite a challenge to get used to in a Westminster context. Um, so select committees do operate, but in a very different way and with limitations because of the course they have a persuasive capacity only they have no sanctions so there's no coercive capacity but in a way that's why they're successful because the government doesn't see them as a threat in that it can't vote down anything the government brings forward so you can scrutinize use the option of publicity produce very good reports very persuasive might persuade members but at the end of the day the committees are agents of the chamber they report to it, but their advisory to the chamber, it's up to the chamber then what it does with uh, select committee reports, whether it wishes to act on them. Their leverage is the quality of their argument. In fact, they are cross-party and select committees seek to produce reports that are unanimous and that's what gives them their force. And they have in recent years provided almost an alternative career path for opposition MPs, uh, particularly, well, government MPs as well, but particularly in recent years, we've seen quite senior figures in the Labour opposition who, for whatever reason, were not prepared to serve Jeremy Corbyn as um, a leader of the opposition, taking on roles as chairs of select committees. So you've got, I think, examples being Hilary Benn, um, you've got Yvette Cooper, both of whom had been senior members of the Shadow Cabinet uh, and Cabinet Ministers before that, both of whom chose to pursue a path as Select Committee Chairs. That was almost a sort of Shadow shadow Cabinet in a way, wasn't it? It's an interesting development that um, that's now seen as a, an alternative to the front bench. Yes, I mean, there have been two major changes in that respect. One was the introduction in 1979 of departmental select committees, so, so a fairly comprehensive uh, system. Been some experimentation before, ad hoc committees, uh, subject areas, departmental, but nothing comprehensive in the way that was brought in. Really, it, it sort of bears out the link or the point I was making earlier about intra-party dissent. It was pressure as much from government backbenchers, the opposition, that brought them in. So government wasn't prepared to resist the pressure from within the House itself to craft them, to set them up. So, and that's important because if you like, once they were set up, they were comprehensive, wide ranging, but they were in the ownership of the house. It wasn't a government initiative as uh, the Crossman reports had been. So that was significant. So they then became a permanent feature of parliamentary life. So extremely important. Second development was in 2010, second wave of reforms of providing that the chairs of select committees would be elected by the whole house and the members elected by the respective parties, parliamentary parties. Well, this removed a major patronage power of the whips. So you no longer had to kowtow, if you like, to the leadership for favour to be put forward with a view to becoming a chair or being put on a select committee. Now, 
if you wanted to chair it, you had to appeal across the House. So you needed not only your own side, but basically the opposition to support you. Um, and that gave you a degree of independence. And so, as you say, it has become both a career path for some and a platform as well for making a case. And I mean, the two points come together because some have got quite high visibility and are far better known than ministers. So it gives one some leverage because you've got the oxygen of publicity. The media look to the chair of the relevant committee, where of course the committee immediately becomes uh, designated as an influential or powerful uh, committee. Uh, so yes, it gives them a leverage, a platform, which has become quite important. But looking at the, the last five years, the sort of Jeremy Corbyn leadership, in terms of, of Parliament, it threw up some quite interesting challenges. Just alluded to the fact that we saw senior members of the Labour Party choosing to take a slightly different path and not to serve on the front bench. Um, but there was also, of course, the no confidence vote. You had the Parliamentary Labour Party voting no confidence in their leader and then being challenged for the leadership and being returned um, after a, um, a vote of Labour members. Do you think it's a problem that we've we've now reached a, a situation where both parties in both major parties in, in Westminster now have their leader chosen from outside of Parliament? Um, we've had two occasions now where the leader of the opposition has had difficulty because they haven't had the support of their own backbenchers. Um, Ian Duncan Smith for the Conservatives had that problem, um, and Jeremy Corbyn had that problem. I mean that that raises issues for, for um, governing parties particularly, but it's also a problem for oppositions as well, isn't it? If you've got this situation yes. where the, the, the party in the country is now seen as the, the locus of power. Oh, absolutely. And of course, structures and processes matter. And as you say, the shift to electing the party leader by the party membership creates problems for a system of government where the leader relies as head of government on the government side, relies on the confidence of the House of Commons, which is basically your majority party, your own parliamentary party. But if you don't have the support of your own parliamentary party, there's, there's a, a problem. Um, and so on seeing that, as you say, I mean, marked in opposition, both parties now have a system where they could produce a leader who has never had the support of the majority of the parliamentary party. And that's a problem of the system. But there is, of course, one significant difference between the parties in terms of their rules, which is the rules for getting rid of a leader. So pretty similar in terms of choosing a leader. The party membership uh, basically elects the leader, but the Conservative Party has a procedure where you can get rid of the leader. The leader can be subject to a vote of confidence by MPs. So in Duncan Smith was subject to a vote of confidence and lost it, and so was Alp. Um, Theresa May faced a vote of confidence in the parliamentary party, but she won it. Had she lost it, it should have been out straight away. The problem for Labour is they don't have a similar procedure. So you can't challenge the leader within the parliamentary party. You can have a vote of confidence, but it's informal. It has no effect on the rule of party. So it, it was uh, if you like, just indicating that he didn't have confidence in the way of trying to get him to go, but they couldn't actually force him to go. And, and that just therefore highlighted that the, that the opposition had to leave the opposition who didn't have the support of the majority of the opposition. So that's, that's a problem, particularly with Labour, but you're quite right, there's a problem with both in the method they now elect a leader who then relies on the support of their parliamentary party. And there was some discussion, I, I remember I was 
sort of speculating that given that the, the leader of the opposition is defined in legislation in terms of their salary as being the person who is the, the leader of the uh, second largest party in opposition to the government, that there was a possibility, certainly if the Speaker had so decided, of the Labour Parliamentary Party deciding to elect themselves a new leader of the opposition who would be somebody other than the leader of the Labour Party. And that didn't come to pass because the Speaker made it clear that he would interpret the rules as being that the leader of the Labour Party was the leader of that party. But it's an interesting idea, isn't it? That, that, that oh, yeah. We, we, we could have had that situation. Yeah. And, and certainly for the Conservative Party, clearly the, the, the governing party, if the parliamentary party were to, to choose somebody else or pass a resolution um, to say, to advise the monarch that, that they should uh, uh, call somebody else, that would probably have been seen to have effect as well. So it's, it's something which, which might come up again in future, that uh, you could have a challenge to that idea of, um, of the party in the country choosing the leader. Oh, absolutely. I mean, there are pres- I mean, if you look at historically, um, there's never necessarily been just one designated leader anyway. You have a chair and a leader. Or, I mean, the Conservative Party used to have a leader in the Commons and the Lords. So it wasn't clear who the party leader was. So, yes, it used to be a case of um, a period when who does the monarch call upon if there's a vacancy for the premiership. So, yes, it would be possible for uh, a parliamentary party to elect someone and say that this person is our leader. And of course, there was talk among opposition parties of possibly coming up with a name as an alternative to Jeremy Corbyn. So could they put forward a name to the monarch of someone who was not the leader of the opposition? It's fascinating kind of pub games we can play about sort of these constitutional um, issues. But I think in a way that brings us on to your new book. You've got a new book out this week on the Constitution. It's quite a broad topic. Is there any particular focus that you're, you're aiming at? Not as such, because, I mean, the title is Governing Britain, but it's got a subtitle Parliament Ministers and Our Ambiguous Constitution. So what it's designed to tease out is some of the sort of conundrums that we've been touching upon. So it's really looking at the, the problems it, it faces, some of the issues in resolving parliamentary sovereignty versus the rule of law, the relationship there between Parliament and uh, the, the judiciary. Though I also look separately at the relationship between the courts and uh, Parliament and the executive and looking at things like the choice of Prime Minister, how, who decides um, who's going to be the leader and Prime Minister, how do you get rid of a leader? What happens constitutionally if the Prime Minister dies? And looking at what about a deputy? Because there's a problem constitutionally in, in designating someone as the deputy Prime Minister. They do not have an automatic right to succeed the Prime Minister. Um, so there's been tension over the use of the term deputy Prime Minister. So some have been deputy Prime Minister de facto, more recently formally titled. Then you've had the role of First Secretary of State as well created uh, under Macmillan. So it looks at a range of conundrums, the use of conventions within our systems, looking at ministerial responsibility, uh, collective and individual. And, um, so it's really teasing out the different like, the problems of our constitution to try and make some sense of conundrums, particularly those that have been more to the fore in recent years, in, including, of course, um, Parliament, Brexit and the EU, uh, who governs. Quite a broad canvas. And in terms of how opposition has developed over the years, 
I think in about 2000, William Hague asked you to chair a commission on, on reform of parliament. And I think part of, um, of the um, initiative for that would have come from his frustration at being leader of the opposition and um, finding himself facing a huge majority um, from the Labour government. When a leader of the opposition is in that situation, they, they, they I think, realise probably more than they did before the extent to which perhaps some of the levers of, um, of power that they might have had uh, in previous years uh, to oppose the government have gradually been whittled away. But that's been a process over, over many years, hasn't it? What, what have been the, the main challenges that opposition has faced over the recent decades in terms of its, um, its lack of influence? Well, it is the, the fact it's a minority, but normally it is the opposition, it's the government that's got a majority, so you're always going to have that problem. So it's a way of developing to challenge government in a different way, because what one can look at is not so much government versus opposition, but um, executive legislative relationships, so the House as a whole, so not just opposition. So that's where things like the select committees come in. And also thinking about other ways of strengthening processes, whether it's legislative process. So we've seen, for example, public bill committees replacing standing committees. So at least you can take evidence from outside bodies. There's more input coming in. Say select committees have been strengthened. Um, you've got more input from people outside with the petitions committee and the use of petitions, which has been a major success story because that gives if you like to have some leverage to debate what people outside want to be debated. Um, the Backbench Business Committee, so for the first time you've really had a, a committee of the House scheduling business. So that was a major innovation. So matters being discussed that the government didn't want to be discussed. So if you like what's been happening has been looking at processes which have not so much strengthened the opposition, but if you like complemented the opposition by creating ways for the House as a whole to scrutinise and influence government. So yes, some very significant changes in structures, in processes, and even constitutionally, because now the government is expected to come to the House of Commons to get its approval if it wants to commit British forces in action abroad. Um, so that's a major change. So um, although one can argue, and some do, or the House of Commons become much weaker than before, actually, it, it's, it's become much stronger because the structures and processes that have been introduced and, you know, if you like, underpinned by the whole thing we've been discussing, which is members being more willing to be independent of their own party and, and therefore act more, if you like, as in members of the House rather than simply loyalists to the party. And I think alongside that, you've, you've had, I think, both an increase in independence of, of MPs and increase in dissent within parties. You've also had those structural uh, innovations. You've also had the greater use of things that were already there. So things like urgent questions, yeah. um, which Speaker Burko made a, a, a very uh, conscious effort to, to encourage and to grant more of. And that's now become an established feature of Parliamentary Day now, that if a statement hasn't been offered on an issue of the day, then you, you, you're pretty sure that there's likely to be a UQ on it. Things like that have also perhaps um, helped the opposition as as well. Does, does all of this play into an idea that the decline of Parliament thesis is uh, has been shown to be rather wanting in recent years? It, it tends to to develop when you've got a, a government with a large majority, so under Margaret Thatcher and then under Tony Blair, we have people talking about the decline of Parliament. 
but in certainly looking over the last five years or even 10 years, I don't think you could really sustain that, that thesis. Are we seeing sort of the end of that, um, of that idea of the decline of parliament? Well, we have been, and, and the direction of travel has certainly been the House of Commons becoming stronger in its relation to the executive, those structural changes coming in on the back of members being more independent and pressing for change. So, yes, the House has become more significant, although under Thatcher and Blair have this concept of the presidentialization of British politics. Um, nonetheless, they both at times have to take the House of Commons seriously. They both suffer defeat. They, they work on throne, but it's become more significant. It is building up became more pronounced in the 2017, 2019 parliament, when you could argue the House of Commons was a bit too strong because government was being a bit too constrained in terms of what it wanted to achieve and it undermined accountability because it was being constrained by a transient majority in the House of Commons, not by a, a clear defined opposition that would then stand before the electors at the next election to be accountable for what it had done. And so just very recently we had some rapid shifts of the 2017-2019 parliament, House of Commons being extremely powerful, and then in response to the, uh, the COVID-19 crisis, real problems there in, in getting the two houses to be able to operate in a way that could constrain government. So although both houses have done reasonably well in, in terms of being able to operate, both are, are limited simply because of the constraints imposed um, so they can't meet in full in the chamber, you can't have the normal interaction, the interventions, the challenging government really putting them under pressure, that normally you could. So just recently we've had some really massive swings, but if you like those apart, the underlying trend, yes, has been, if you like, the strength of the commons, not a weakening. And the whole problem with the decline thesis is what was it declining from? Because you didn't have some high point you know, the 1950s, the 1960s, this concept of, you know, the independent backbench, it was total nonsense. I mean, the 1950s was the high point of party loyalty. So it's, it's not declined since then, it's, it's been strengthened. And finally, I think um, one of the things we're trying to do with, with this podcast and with the centre more generally is to promote greater study of opposition. It's something which has a, a huge significance within uh, the study of parliament but also within uh, the study of democracy more more broadly why do you think it is that um, political studies hasn't focused more on opposition as a concept and as an institution and, and why is it important for it to be studied you've in your career spent perhaps more time than most looking at opposition uh, alongside government but i think you're you're one of the few i think there's a part of the problem is what we it sort of comes full circle in actually understanding what opposition is um, and perhaps seeing it in a negative light of adversarial politics government versus opposition and regarding other systems that are more consensual if you like as more constructive um, and so what's been missed out has been the value of having a structured opposition because what it means is the government knows that you it faces an opposition that's going to challenge it not necessarily oppose it despite the name, I mean, it's there to keep it in check, to check what it's doing, see, well, can we come up with an alternative, something better to what it's doing? So the government knows it's under scrutiny, if you like, from the opposition on a consistent basis. So whenever it brings forward, the opposition is going to look at it critically, not necessarily from the point of view of simply opposing, they might find reasons to support it, or at least not oppose it, but they are going to scrutinise it to check. 
So that consistent scrutiny is the great value. In a consensual system, you might not get it. A lot might sort of slip under the radar. In our system, however trivial, you know, secondary legislation brought forward, it has to have approval, the opposition is going to respond. The rules of our system are very good because, as a structured on government opposition, but it's entitled the opposition to be heard. So a minister will bring something forward, person on the opposition side will come to the front bench, come to the dispatch box to respond. Um, and that I think is extremely important because it, it's a constraint on government because they know that's going to happen. They have to work within that system. So they've got to be ready to justify what they do. They can't take it as given, have a majority to get it through, but somebody's going to stand up and query it and question it. They know that. So it, it's important for government to think through how do we justify this? You know, if you like, we'll stress test it. What will the opposition say about this? Uh, under the other systems, you don't necessarily get that consistency in examining what the government is bringing forward. So I think that is the value of opposition. And as I say, the opposition has the right to respond and to be heard. Might not have the numbers, but it's got the platform. Well, there we are. Testimony there from our greatest living expert on Parliament. That opposition really does matter. You'll detect a theme is starting to emerge in these podcasts, which is that at the end of the interview, I basically ask my guests to confirm um, that I'm not wasting my life in studying opposition, that it really actually does matter. Um, so I'm grateful to Philip for uh, indulging me by giving that explanation about why it is important to study it, uh, because otherwise, what are we all doing here? And on that existentialist note, uh, I think it's probably best that we draw this podcast to a conclusion for this week. One thing I didn't uh, have the opportunity to do, uh, mainly because our Zoom connection cut out at the end of the interview, was I didn't manage to give Philip the opportunity to plug his book again. Uh, so I will do it uh, on his behalf. The book is called Governing Britain, Parliament, Ministers and Our Ambiguous Constitution. And it's out later this week on the 17th of September. And I'm very much looking forward uh, to it. And as he said, I think during uh, an earlier part of the interview, it's uh, very reasonably priced. That's all for this week. My thanks to Philip for joining us. Uh, I'll be back in two weeks' time with another guest, unless I decide unilaterally to renege on that commitment. But for the moment, thanks very much for joining me. Look after yourselves, and I'll see you soon. Opposition Cast is produced by the Centre for Opposition Studies. You can follow us at Facebook at Opposition Studies, Twitter at Opposition UK, and online at oppositionstudies.net. Yes, this does break international law in a very specific and limited way.